0: the I listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. The whole song that time. <laughs> yeah, we had, we're scrambling here trying to get our guests lined up. My name is Richard Hill. This is the Organic Farm Stand, and we come to you the first and third Thursday of each month. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you get uh, what you are seeking in our program today. We have a, actually a pretty interesting show. I'm going to welcome right now, um, make sure I have the right. Um Thing here actually. Let's try this one. Steve, are you with us?
1: Yes, I am. Nice oh, to be here.
0: That's good. Uh, yeah, I'm s- scrambling to uh, really get familiar with the new board. And so um, I'm always thrilled and delighted when I push the right button. Well, Steve, um, yeah, I was just mentioning that we, we have sort of a interesting show today because this is the first Thursday of the month Therefore, Vincent K. will be joining us. He's the honeybee uh, maven, and he'll be telling us of his adventures uh, and probably a whole lot of wisdom about bees and pollination and uh, the whole schmear. So that'll be coming up um, in about 10, 12, 15 minutes or so. Then in the second half of the show, from approximately 12.30 to 12.55, we have a special guest um, whose name is Werner Heiter, if I'm not mistaken. Let me let me just make sure I got that name out, or Heiber or Heiter. It's one or the other, but he is somebody that I met when I was doing uh, uh, participating in the. Let me see, uh, well, I'll find it anyway. He he was participating in the uh, Milk and Money Symposium, which was part of the Real Organic Project. Uh, symposium that was this week, uh, this past weekend and will be again next weekend. That was on Sunday, uh, January thirtieth, and it uh, no January thirty first. I can't remember, but anyway, and we'll and, and the next one is on February sixth this this coming Sunday. So um, they had wonderful presentations from spokespersons from all over the country and even the world about the situation with uh, big dairy snuffing out small farming, uh, dairy farms in uh, New England and across the country. And, um, and then they broke up into uh, these kind of like networking sessions. So I was on one of those when uh, um, Werner joined me. And we talked, and his, his, he had some very interesting things to say about farming. He's from Switzerland, and so his, his uh, conversation was about how in such a small country with so little arable land, they, um, they maintain it and, and what their policies are, and comparing that to what happens in the United States, where we have an abundance of arable land, but we seem to be converting it into blacktop at an alarming rate. Anyway, back to Steve. Steve, so how, we're, we're, we always check in with you about the uh, CSA report, to get a CSA report from you, a small farms report. What are you up to? I understand you have some personal family challenges, <laughs> which you well, are. Uh, uh,
1: yeah, yeah. So my apologies for that. We are you know, scrambling a little bit this morning. It's, uh, you know, uh, the COVID virus has sort of touched touched a lot of us around the state, and my two-year-old was sick last week. He's fine now, happily, but uh, we're all home, uh, making sure that we don't put anyone else at risk. So, um, yeah, so, you know, it keeps me tending the farm and tending the family. Um, we get some time together outside, happily, and right now we're watching some snow melt out there we got to play out there in a little bit of it and you know we are quite a windy spot here so the the storm uh brought a lot of snow but because of the way it flows across the farm uh, we have bare spots and big drifts so i think it'll be another day or two before the the drifts and big piles that we got will will melt down but uh, we're seeing more and more bare spots as this warmer day and rain uh melted away and around the farm, you know we've just been you know we prepared for the storm, getting all the livestock ready and then now we're we're dealing with some of the aftermath that happily everybody's fine all the buildings are secure, all the animals uh you know stayed well, uh, but the things that come up in winter uh you know have come up, which means there's some bits of frozen water, some bits of uh, electricity that didn't uh, stay stay with power throughout uh, some of our outlets where we keep um, keep our water warm and keep it from freezing you know those outlets tripped and so we're just you know making those little repairs and uh doing the things we need to do bringing hauling buckets of water about to to uh you know fill in where uh where we we lost our bits of water for our animals so uh, it's changed up the daily structure a little bit when when those things um when those things happen but Otherwise, we're in good shape and, and still deep in the planning for, for the season ahead. So that means seed ordering, crop planning, you know, deciding where on the farm everything is going to go, uh, thinking about our crop rotation, you know, where our tomatoes were last year, where they're going to be this year, where our winter squash and summer squash and cucumbers were last year, where they're going to be this year, how we're going to integrate our uh, flowers and, and pollinator uh, habitats. Uh, with that are annuals uh, and such for, for flowering species, you know, where they're going to be in relation to those crops as well. So it's a planning time. Um, I'm reading books. I'm um looking at seed catalogs and you know thinking about workshops as well uh you know that that time to dig into those things as well so and starting next week actually the end of next week we have our our connecticut nofa winter conference coming up too so um lots of opportunities uh with that conference to learn and and dig in and help prepare for the season ahead
0: indeed yeah we we should mention that uh why don't why don't you uh mention again the date for the nofa conference
1: yeah, so, you know, it's available throughout sort of the month. We, we've got uh, our kickoff is next Friday. Um, uh, so a week from tomorrow, we have our sort of evening kickoff. We'll have uh, the Bill Dusing, uh Award that night, uh, and we'll have kind of a, a recorded keynote, um, which I believe will be from Leah Penniman. We have This year we actually have sort of have three keynotes in a way. Uh, between um, the way we're doing with this virtual workshop. And, then, and you can tune into some of those at any time, but we have uh, Seed Sovereignty from Elizabeth Hoover. We've got um, uh, Winona LaDuke delivering a, a keynote session uh, that, that she she gave previously that we have recorded, uh, Native American Women and, and Mother Earth, it's titled, and then uh, Uprooting Racism and Seeding Sovereignty from Leah Penniman. Um, so you can start into that next Friday night. And then the following week, the week of um, the 11th, there are workshops throughout the day um, uh, Monday through Friday, or actually rather sorry Monday the 14th Valentine's Day. There'll be you know, workshops throughout the day, uh, Monday through Friday uh, that you can tune into. And if you register for the conference, you'll have access to that sort of recorded material um you know for well beyond the the actual live presentations so there's recorded content there's live content and a lot of opportunity to um to absorb that all sort of you know so it's always hard to to do these things in a virtual manner but the benefit of it is uh that you can go to all of the workshops whereas for the in person con- uh, conference you know there's there's 5 to 10 workshops in, in any given Workshop slot for mm-hmm. any hour. You can only choose one to go to. Right. Uh, so you kind of miss out. But now you have the opportunity to go to some live ones and then also see them recorded and access those later. Um, so, you know, there's a bright side to it, I suppose. You can uh, actually dig into some more information if you want.
0: Yeah, we're getting used to uh, this new world and, the, you know, what school kids have ha- had to cope with for uh, the past two years, uh, the ones that are. are studying doing their studying at home online you know that that must be such a bizarre you know evolution they have to go through but once they do it there are pluses there too so that's that's kind of cool as as you point out with this conference the material is there it's not going away you can revisit it and uh, pick up the things you missed on the first round Steve, I'm I'm, got, I'm going to set you on a course here to talk for a bit because I have to get Vincent on the phone, and sure. um, so what I one of the questions I had was, uh, are you planning um, to change any of your so-called menu? In other words, are you you adding any produce items or floral uh, choices for the next growing season and uh, you know, go into as plenty much detail as you like because I'll need a couple of yeah. minutes here.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, right, no great. problem. Thank you. Yeah. So each each year we we evaluate. You know what we've done in the past, uh, how we've done it, what we might like to do a little bit differently, and um, yeah, and if there's any new thing that we could incorporate into the farm. You know, we listen to our CSA subscribers and our customers and what they what they might want, and uh, as we head into this year. One of the things we've really honed in on is the potential to do some more flower growing. Um, I've really always loved to have flowers on the farm for uh, for the beauty of it, uh, for the enjoyment of it, uh, for making the bouquets, and, of course, for the pollinators on the farm as well, uh, so that even if we're not using our flowers for a decorative fashion, or for sales of for, uh, bouquets and such, um, you know that they are present there for our pollinators. They're they're acting as beneficial insects, as sort of predatory insects on some um, some of the pests that might impact our crops. So. Uh, now we're looking at incorporating those those flowers a little bit more and and taking uh, the, that potential to to be a little more active with our bouquet making uh, and bringing flowers uh, potentially including that as part of the CSA or as sort of a CSA add-on and having more flowers and bouquets available you know at the farm for for purchase at CSA pickup uh, and bringing them to the market or um, you know uh, throughout the summer so that, that's that's. That's a renewed uh, attention for us. We had done some of that years ago and and, and have kind of scaled it back um, recently, but this year we decided we'd like to ramp that back up again and see if we can do a little more bouquet making. And then on the other exciting front, I mean, we'll see what this year brings, but this is year three of an asparagus planting for us. So uh, we're hoping to be able to harvest a little bit more asparagus this year and make that available uh that's something it's a it's perennial crop that we put in the ground so you know this will be our third year of it coming around and and you need to in year in year 1 and year 2 be gentle with your asparagus harvest because the the asparagus shoots that come up that's what's going to bring more energy down into the to the crowns so that they'll produce more in the future so a very light harvest in year 1 and year 2 and if you if you've got an asparagus patch, you probably know that the asparagus actually makes its own wonderful, really beautiful green flower later on. Uh, so we let those flourish, and then uh, uh, and that's going to bring that energy back down into the ground, into their into the crowns so that they expand and are, are more productive uh, going forward. So this is a year where we're hopeful that we might be able to offer a little bit of our own asparagus for the first time. Um, and in a similar vein, you know, we've been adding rhubarb uh, to the farm and we, we've been able to offer a little bit the last couple of years. We added to our planting this, this last year. So we're hoping to expand our, our rhubarb offering uh, in 2022, which matches great with with strawberries, which is one of our favorite things to to bring uh, to the community. You know, or, organic fruit is hard to come by, and organic strawberries are particularly rare. And and we think our uh, strawberries are particularly delicious too. So, uh, and being able to add in the rhubarb with that for so those who like to make the the pies and the jams, it's a really great combo. So, so we're hoping this year is a little bit more productive on that front.
0: Remind us, uh, Steve, how how many acres you're actually cultivating there?
1: Yeah, we are cultivating ten, about ten acres uh, for vegetable production, and, and of course, there's always some rotation involved and, and resting. And so, we had about an acre plus this year that was, you know, in cover crop throughout the whole year, not planted, mm-hmm. uh, but sort of resting, recovering, uh, and, and in a rotation for for. Um, for cover crops that'll be utilized next year. So yeah, we're we're working with about with about ten acres of vegetable production.
0: Okay, and and just uh, before we go to Vincent uh, Vincent K., the bee man, uh, mm-hmm. let folks know how they can uh, reach you uh, either through email or you know some kind yeah, of absolutely. S- sign up online or something.
1: Mm-hmm. We we've got a great sign up online, masarofarm.org M-A-S-S-A-R-O farm.org. You can find us there. There'll be links to our our CSA subscription page. Um, And we also have uh, this year, new and exciting, Sort of, we've started to be able to accept payment with EBT. Um, so that's available now, which, which uh, took a little while to get going, but uh, is, is available, and people have been taking advantage of that, um, so there's better access to our CSA. And this year, we added in some sliding scale pricing as well, so uh, really trying to make this as accessible as possible to the community. Uh, so that's available, massarofarm.org can always reach out to me. I have an email, csa at massarofarm.org. We're pretty easy to find there.
0: Beautiful. That's great. A lot of different ways to connect. Well, um, Steve, stand by. I'm going to see if I can get Vincent on the line. Vincent, are you there on this particular track?
2: I am. I Um, am, Richard. Hello. Are you there? (laughs) Yeah,
0: We're here. You're there. Um, Yeah. Yeah we have two different faders for the phones now, but, but you're both on the same, you're both on the ah. same fader. So that's, uh, that, uh, simplifies that a bit. So, uh, Vincent, how are you doing? And, um, what are you up to?
2: Well, it's, it's truly winter as, as Steve mentioned. Uh, if you have livestock, one of the, the biggest things is trying to get water to them, especially chickens and, and things like that and, and, uh, other animals as well. But, uh, we, you know, things freeze up and we've had quite a, quite a cold snap, um, more so than in, you know, the last five years or so. And, um, so we, you know, we, we've been involved mugging water out to chickens and, um, we don't use the electric elements, uh, in the waterers just because, uh, it uses up a lot of electricity. So we do it by hand and on the really, really cold days. Sometimes we have to do it twice a day because, uh, we, uh, friction or, or gravity water, uh, feeders. Um, Tend to freeze up, so we've been doing that. And um, there's so many little chores uh, around a business. And you know, it's interesting, Richard. The last time we talked, um, you you, you mentioned that you know we're always trying, you know, trying to set up a new bee yard, and it seemed like you know we were larger than life. And and we we have a lot of things going uh, in the beekeeping uh, world, which is perhaps true. But one of the things I thought about it since then. And I said, one of the things that really, I think, sets us off a little bit differently than a lot of beekeepers who, and and by no means do I mean this in a negative way, but most of the beekeepers in Connecticut are hobbyists, and that's a great thing. It's a great thing to have bees and, and to be involved in bee husbandry. But I think one of the things, and I certainly started that way myself, but one of the things that sets us off a little bit and changes our daily routine is to approach Um, This part of agriculture, that that being beekeeping as a business and as a business like any other business, we have a bottom line to make at the end of the year. We have taxes to pay. I have payroll to meet. Um, There there are things in a business which when applied to farming, gets kind of (laughs) interesting because you've got to you've got to make purchases uh, at least now six months in advance because of uh, supply chain issues. Uh, because of the pandemic, it certainly has affected us anyhow, getting bottles, getting uh, lids and caps and, and uh, printers printing our labels, which, you know, we tried to do by the tens of thousands to keep the price down, but you know, their labor is an issue. So it it goes back and forth and, you know, it it all kind of works out, but without being a business, I don't think we'd have the same drive um, to succeed and sort of uh, make it work. And so when we, When we lose hives, um, for whatever reason, it's it's money off of our bottom line. And so we we also take it so seriously when we have hives perish for one reason or another, because then we try to figure out exactly why they died and then uh, make it better. And so we we have meetings about how to do that, um, myself and helpers and and people who are working with me. Um, And we try to set this as new standards for each year okay, we lost a certain number of hives in this bee area. Um, Are we too close to a golf course or some place that's spraying a lot of pesticides and fertilizers? Um, We'll have to see. Let's take note of that. And then maybe in a number of years, that bee yard will have to be moved out of that area completely. So there's little things that we take a lot of notes uh, in every bee yard. Um, We drive in and we are immediately um, observing what's going on in the bee yards. And, of course, at this time of year, the electric fences are a prime uh, source of headaches, but also um, allow us to sleep well at night with the, uh, the black bear population. So we, in in uh, Connecticut, we've had so many storms with wind and a lot of trees come down. And so those branches and trees sometimes uh, fall onto electric lines that we have with our solar panels. And um, and so that affects the, uh, the fencing completely. So we have to cut our way in sometimes and this and that. So we're actually really busy even though it's kind of a dead time of year i mean and when i say that <laughs> we usually travel with with uh, my three dogs um uh, i have three labradors and sometimes they'll disappear from the truck while we're working with bees and i help her we'll say well where'd the dogs go i say oh they'll be back and sure enough they're dragging some carcass in from the woods somewhere that <laughs> was either a kind of kill or something that uh, didn't make it through the winter and they're so proud of themselves for finding such a cachet, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, but um, yeah, we're in the process of making new equipment. Now um, we do have a new yard that we're opening up in prospect, which we haven't really um, the paperwork is set. So we're all set on that, but we haven't really made an appearance there. We've got too much else to do. And with the other yards that, that have a lot of bees right now. And I think in the past, I've always told other beekeepers and, hobby is not to feed bees in the winter when it gets really cold. And I, I, I still believe that because we use a friction pail um, feeder, which runs by gravity. In other words, it's like a, a bottle of syrup, sugar syrup, that we feed the bees. Actually, it's in a can, but it's like a hamster feeder. The, the, the syrup sits in the can, and as the bees need it, they pull it through the little um, pinholes that we've made in the lid, and we turn it upside down and it slowly drips, and they pull the syrup out. However, one of the drawbacks of it is that on a nice day, the can and inside the box where the can is heats up to a higher temperature, and then at night it cools down. So it works like a a maple tree pumping the the sap um, for maple syrup. It works like a diaphragm, and it it just pumps the syrup on the bees and can freeze them overnight. Right now we've got a number of um, successful feedings going on because we had a a few hives that were light. And I said, well, they're going to die if we don't feed them. And so let's just feed them and we see what happens. And we did. And sure enough, they've taken down the syrup and the clusters are big enough where they can evaporate the moisture. And they've had a few good days to to fan wings over the syrup to dry it a little bit. And um, it actually may save their lives in the in the long run. So I may want to amend that and say, well, in the case of starvation, definitely try to feed, but just know that, you know, you may not succeed if the weather gets warm. Um, So in any event, um, that's where we're at right now. Um, You know, we're in the process also of um, looking at buckets and buckets of cappings. When we harvest the honey in the summer, we use a steam knife to run it over the combs that are filled with honey. And that slices off a layer of, of wax or the cappings that seal up that honey. We let the cappings drain into buckets and we use that honey because it's good honey. So we filter the honey and out it goes into human consumption. However, we're left with all these wax beeswax cappings, which we render. And so we're getting to the point also of, of um, getting close to rendering beeswax, which is a whole process. It's um, we use these big cauldrons and double boilers and we float the the liquid wax. They run on an immersion heater, like a hot water heater. And, the the wax liquefies, but it's it's lighter than water, so it floats on top of uh, about ten gallons of water in each in each uh, uh, melter. And then we lower the level of the water until wax comes out of the spigot. And as it ha- comes out of the spigot, we filter it through um, many layers of cheesecloth, and we end up with these big chunks of beautiful yellow, um, pure and unburned beeswax, which is you know, top grade, fancy grade A wax, which uh, often artists call us. um, They use those uh, for, you know, different arts projects. But uh, we have a number of industrial uses, people calling for for the use of the wax also. And then, of course, we also make candles year-round here. So the beeswax candles are are premium. Yeah,
0: it sounds like a real Operation Santa's Workshop kind of thing going on there. Uh, one question I have for you, Vincent, before we yeah. begin to wrap up, um, we had—I I was curious about when you try to develop new territory for your beehives, like you said in prospect, you're, you're doing the paperwork for that. Yeah. Wh- who are you negotiating with? Is this—is this, is this uh, private owners or is it state land? Uh, and and what's what's sort of the labyrinth you have to. Find your way well, through. Well,
2: sometimes it is um, uh, private uh, companies, um, like utility companies. I won't mention names offhand, but um, you can kind of imagine uh, certain certain companies—electric, um, water, uh, etc. They own large tracts of land in the state of Connecticut. Big open tracts of land, and um, so there is. When I say that there's paperwork, yes, we lease property. Um, we don't own the property. You could never own enough property to to run the number of hives that we do um so and we find out sometimes that an area that we thought would sustain the number of hives with food won't and so Mm. sometimes we have to reduce the number of hives in order to meet um the available food sources in that area whether it be from shrubs trees um different areas so you kind of eyeball it but at the same time you, you have to sort of tweak it as the season goes on and as the years of seasons go on you say well we've had to feed this bee yard so many times there's something wrong here either there's too many bees there's not enough food something so we usually adapt to it one of the biggest things we look for when we're looking um, to open up a new uh area is um not only food sources but a clean source of water so that'll give you an idea that a lot of reservoirs are areas that are highly sought after by us uh-huh. because of the clean water sources. Um, and, um, and, of course, we try to keep them away from people, the bees, that is. So um, the further away from human contact, the better, uh, whether it be from uh, the hyper-manicuring of lawns by chemicals mm-hmm. or, um, in some ways, uh, commercial agriculture itself by its use of chemicals and insecticides. Um, we try to stay far enough away where the bees are healthy and, and they're not exposed to those kinds of chemicals. It's never perfect. Connecticut's a very crowded state. Um, but in general, we feel that we've minimized um, uh, honeybee mortality or losses uh, due to chemicals. Um, so we feel like we're doing something right on that scale. But those are just a couple of the factors that we look at Um you know, we don't we don't have bees next to a walking trail, say, uh, in the woods, even though it may be way out in the woods. If there's a walking trail that comes close to the bee yard, we usually say no, no thank you, um, just because, um, you know, people are curious. And, hmm. you know, whether it be on horseback, bicycle, dirt bike, motorcycle, they cruise on by, and uh, sure enough, you know, people get stung, and is- there's issues, and uh, hmm. we try to minimize those from the very beginning.
0: All right. Well, that's a very, very well described uh, uh, situation that you're doing there. And just uh, last point on this is um, you mentioned the um, diminution, reduction, lack of availability at this point of, of a lot of open space and farmland in Connecticut. Do you, can you assess, you know, briefly the the rate at which that land is being uh, you know, paved over. <laughs> I mean, I, that's that's putting it crudely, but I mean turned into housing developments and suburban yeah. communities, yeah. that sort of thing. Do, yeah. do you have a sense of that? Because actually our next guest, um, it, it grew up in Switzerland and uh, knows quite a bit about the the way that very small country with very limited uh, open space is coping with that problem. So it might be interesting. To hear, um... you know, it's
2: a huge, it's a huge problem, and it's a huge issue, which goes into a, probably a longer discussion, Richard. But yeah. I've lived long enough, as you probably have. I think we're pretty much the same age, maybe. But a lot of my helpers are much younger, and I explain as we drive through the suburbs um, on our way to B yards. I I will point out. I'll say this: this uh, track of land was beautiful at one point, and the houses and condos weren't there um, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I'm approaching my 40th year as a beekeeper. And um, I certainly grew up in a town and I'll mention the town it's Stratford and uh, in Shelton, Stratford, Shelton area. And the area has gone through, I mean, unbelievable uh, destruction of open space. Uh, There's no other way to put it. Um, The people I think who, are in charge of zoning and open space rules and laws should really probably step down and and let some new people come in because they've done a horrible job, Uh, just a horrible job, and they failed utterly. And I just see absolutely um, huge, I mean, thousands and thousands of acres. I knew Oak Orchards before it was a condominium and a nursing home and other places uh, over there on that hill across some Sikorsky aircraft. I, that was all open space in the woods for thousands of acres. Um, and uh, by imminent domain and other issues, the state, you know, gave farmers and open space uh, deed owners a um, n- minimum amount of money and purchased, purchased uh, uh, land so that highways could be brought through. The, the new Route 8, um, the expansion of 95, certain, certain highways weren't even there. I mean, the new Route 8 wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened when I was about 16 or 17 years old. So growing up as a child, it's very hard for me to go back to my home mm. where I grew up and say, you know, this is, this used to be such a beautiful area because it is so overdeveloped right now. And um, you know, it's, it's a huge issue for the use of water. Um, many of these, 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 these places are still on wells and, you know, the overuse and overdrawing of deep water uh, is becoming an issue all across the United States. But, it will eventually here in Connecticut as well. Hmm.
0: So, Thanks. That's yeah. that's a very, uh, very uh, good summary of the, of the situation in Connecticut. Germaine to our next guest, uh, uh, Werner Hyber, who is going to be joining us in a, in a moment. And uh, also, may, maybe Steve, um, as I make that phone call, maybe you could pick that up. Uh, we'll say goodbye to Vincent, and uh, maybe you could pick up the issue of open space and and what you know from your fellow farmers, small acreage farmers, about how they have to defend their land and, and hopefully convert, um, before the developers get there, to con- convert absolutely. open space to uh, farmland or other recreational land. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let you have it. Go.
1: All right. V- yeah. Vincent,
0: absolutely. thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Richard Vincent. Talk to you next time. Yeah, so as, as Vincent mentioned, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, land loss, you know, in Connecticut and, of course, throughout New England and throughout the country um, to development, and it's a, it's a major issue. You know, the, the biggest issues that young farmers face today are, number one, access to land and, number two, access to, to finances. So, you know, but this land being number one, if you can't find land to grow on, then you, you can't grow. Um so so it's a big issue that we're seeing. You the know, number you United, have filed is not
3: in the service. Country. Please check me. Not-
1: so... You know it's it's important as uh, as the state and as Vincent mentioned, you know town town governments and zoning organizations or there's zoning boards and and uh, open space organizations really need to be prioritizing saving our uh, agricultural land. Um, we've got statewide organizations like Connecticut Farmland Trust and part of American Farmland Trust that um, you know focus on these issues specifically. and there are some strong programs in the state that have uh, you know worked. Uh, through the State Department of Agriculture and other organizations to preserve land, uh, but it 's still competing with this development issue so you you get land that is uh, agricultural land that 's developed or compromised uh, when it 's converted to you know um, how they develop land use into into housing um, you know or any other commercial use other than agriculture it 's a limited resource that we have our our land base. And, and it does require protection, you know. And I'm, of course, currently the benefit of a land, a piece of land that is protected here at Masaro Community Farm. Uh, we've got 57 acres that were put into uh, a conservation easement with the town of Woodbridge. So this was a, you know, a, a historical farm here. The Masaro family farming uh, started here in 1916, and they had two generations of a dairy farm here. Um, they did have to sell off some of the property across the street that used to be part of the farm, uh, but they were able to maintain fifty seven acres and put it into a conservation easement so that it wouldn 't be developed and uh Though it was you know not operating for a while we we 've now been at this doing the certified organic vegetables. Uh, since 2010 so uh, you know there's there's opportunity for land even if it's out of production to come back into production but only if it's protected and uh, you know or maintained or kept from development so I really appreciate everyone out there doing that that important work of protecting the land uh, and, and the farmers doing the growing and, and the community members who you know throughout the state uh, who are doing the work in their in their towns uh, to keep uh, agricultural land viable for the future.
0: Yeah, it does sound like this, this is a situation where communities and uh, farmers have to come together to really make a decision about what their community is going to look like. Is it going to be a, like a condo-ridden, studded with you know split-level homes and yards, which are absorbing huge quantities of pesticides to keep them green? Or is it going to be a, a viable part of the, the whole entire ecosystem and a healthy place for people and animals and flora to exist? Well, it's, at this moment, I think we are uh, now joined by a uh, guest, a special guest from Colorado, uh, Werner Heiber. Werner, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Well, thank you so much. This is really serendipitous. Uh, I was mentioning before that we met at the uh, Milk and Money uh, conference, which was put on by um, the Organic... Real The Pro- Real, yeah. Real Organic Project, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that was this past Sunday. And you, we wound up in a um, networking room, so to speak, online, on a Zoom call. And so... Um, we got to talking, and, and as Werner described his uh, early years, you know, in Switzerland, um, I said, "Wow, this this is really very germane to the discussion we just had about open space and farmland in the United States, and of course, the whole conference, uh, the milk and money conference, which really was about how big dairy has." Uh, moved into the organic marketplace and in and, and so doing they're s- sort of s- scooping up uh, the larger dairies to be their suppliers and the smaller dairies who had participated in, the, in that marketplace before are, are losing that piece of the market and are therefore disappearing. And the, the rate at which dairy farms are disappearing in New England is shocking but Werner, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, with reference to your life in Switzerland and what you've discovered here. You live in Colorado now. I'm not sure if you live in a, you know, in a very rural or suburban area or a city. So uh, tell us the story.
3: I came to the United States planning to be here for two years as a chemist, organic chemist. Uh, actually, uh, New York area, Westchester County. And over the years, I migrated west, first to Salt Lake City when I joined a startup company there. And then I quit that uh, with a goal to live more sustainably. And then, we, uh, with my second marriage, we moved to Durango, Colorado, to a co housing community with 60, with total 250 acres. Uh, and now we've moved back into Durango just because the, there was too much driving involved at that point with the work we did. And so since then, I've been involved in numerous stuff, um, straw bill building, affordable housing, community building, uh, sustainability, energy issues, trying to convert, uh, trying to, as a helping to we have a local uh, co-op, La Plata Electric Association, to get that, uh, give them more freedom from tri-state to generate uh, renewable energy. So a number of projects. and But I also have grown, uh, have been in community community gardens and partnered with uh, a young farmers market couple and so I joined Real Organics. So that's in brief. Mm-hmm. But
0: go ahead. No, I just wanted. Yeah, I just wanted to steer us toward that uh, the concept uh, or, or the the information you were s- talking about. Yeah, the situation in Switzerland vis-a-vis United States, and uh, this, the the problems uh, that they face in t- in terms of maintaining open space and and uh, land available for, yeah. some, for small farming, and uh, you know how that compares to what you've seen in the United States.
3: Well, the big difference is that Switzerland, Europe, Central Europe, everywhere Europe has been, has been settled a long time ago. And they ran out of space hundreds of years ago. And so they had to utilize every little corner. And at that point, to stay somewhat self-sufficient, and because the international markets of shipping food did not exist yet. Every little corner was used. And so there was a there's a different attitude to land and to sustainability. They had to be sustainable in difference to the United States where it was which was seen by, by us white people as an open country with plenty of land. And so the ownership concepts that developed here were based on ownership and keeping people out, while in Europe, land is open. Uh, anybody can walk in the countryside. You, you respect uh, private property, which are, which are fields, farm fields, woods. You stay and pass. Uh, but there's simply no no trespassing in Switzerland and Northern Europe and other places in Europe too.
0: So you're saying there is no there's no uh, admonition against people walking across someone else's land as long as you, you know, respect the the person's property and, and don't do any crazy thing like starting a bonfire Correct. or something. Correct. And
3: yeah. I mean it was understood in the wintertime you can walk across the field. Doing harvest during growing times, you do not you stay on path. so right. when I grew up, we used to collect apples or even or potatoes or fields that have been harvested uh, uh, but had still apples lying on the floor, you don't them from the tree. Mm. that's how I grew up, and that's still to some extent existing, but of course there's more wealth, so there is less of a need. people will not necessarily go anymore and and collect uh, potatoes on fields that have been harvested at hmm. this point.
0: Hmm. So, how much, like, how how much space is actually farmed by individuals and and, and let's say small uh, community supported agriculture concerns, such as the one that Steve is involved in. And Steve, if any any thoughts or, or questions, please chime in because uh, there's there's an interesting sort of confluence here of your two yeah. um, experiences, yeah. but i wonder I wonder so just uh, is uh, how much availability is there for people to do their own little farming experiments and grow you know enough food to maybe su- supply part of their food supply in the family in Switzerland now
3: that's a challenge that's yeah. a challenge in Switzerland you can there are. Uh, garden communities, you know, one of these little garden plots after garden plots, especially around larger cities. You also find these in, in between railroad lines. Um, but land is expensive, and it's generally held, almost exclusively held in farming, in, in farming families. So that's, it stays in the family, And there has some uh, um, efficiency has happened that because traditionally as a farm gets split up amongst the kids, the fields are not anymore next to each other. There's a field there, there's a field there. So they're combining them and making it easier. And especially in the mountains, mountain farmers had five, seven cows and made a living off that with you know years ago today that's not possible anymore so the f- the farms the stables were in the villages and those of you who have visited central Europe you know these the farm the old stables are still in the villages, but now the farms are outside generally, recently built and uh, of s- lo- i'm combining often smaller farms to make it feasible. But even then, uh, to be able to make a living in a mountain situation is really challenging as a farm. Mm -hmm. So, especially mountain farmers are being subsidized. So, they're being helped with subsidies to stay in the land, maintain the land, maintain the quality and the appearance of the land. And also, there's... um, Anyway there's a couple of other factors things that I would like to talk about. Do you have
0: any questions about this? Steve, any, 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 comment or questions?
1: Well, you know, I'll just share in my life before I was a farmer, I, I did get to uh, work and live briefly in Switzerland near Lausanne. And it did have an impact on me then seeing, um, seeing the local agriculture and how well integrated, um, you know, the, the growing was in the community that, and as you described, the sort of between the, the railroad tracks, seeing something, I remember just grapes along the roadside, uh, that people actively were, were harvesting from. And, um, as I was doing some work in the mountains, you know, the, I got to see the, the cows grazing and moving up, up along the mountainside for the, 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 summer and fall. And um, it had an impact. And seeing these these small dairies and small uh, cheesemakers makers uh, in the communities um, was really beautiful. And, and it's a different sort of view and experience of, of open space and land protection and land use than we see here uh, in Connecticut and throughout the states.
3: Correct. Correct. Yeah. That's exactly true. I mean, farms used to be diverse. They had fruit trees, they had grain, even small farms used to. In the flatland now, they do use monoculture now, but it's really interesting that they, uh, to be more profitable, unfortunately, in a way. Uh, But the mountain farms, there are a couple of aspects to that. Um, If you do not maintain the land, it gets scrubbed over. Also, if you don't cut the grass and it, you know, if, if the farmer would leave the steeper slopes unattended, the grass lies, that would lie down in the winter, in the fall, snow comes down, starts to rot underneath and becomes very slippery and the avalanche potentially increases. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is I just talked to my niece, uh, over there again, just to verify she lives in the Eastern part of Switzerland, a place um, i visited several times. Um, that they actually have a program where they pay farmers not to use fertilizers to main diversity in plants, to build the soil to main diversity in insect population. They, they are not allowed to cut the, the, uh, the hay before seeding occurs, but plants seed themselves, reseed themselves, and also only one cutting. So they're actually getting paid to maintain the quality and build the quality of the land.
0: Hmm. That's very very interesting. And I want to. So you're saying that this is a a national policy. This is a government uh, mandate. Correct. And tell a, me,
3: a, a government policy and government check, They actually test the the soil. They test, look at the quality of the land, and then a farmer gets subsidised for doing in a way, the right thing
0: yeah. to the land. Is that Does that include—and by the way, I just want to warn everybody that we're down to three and a half minutes of the show, and then we it will end unceremoniously when our uh, automation system kicks in. So I'm going to have to be a bit uh, uh, of a bully when it comes to, <laughs> down to that last minute. But just uh, last question for you, Heiber, uh, Werner, is— um, What is the percentage or policy about organic, uh, chemical-free farming? And does that affect also the large, uh, big-profit operations that we call, uh, you know, sort of big ag in the United States?
3: I would not know the distribution right now of organic. But there is, you know, there is a... Most farms are still small. I mean, they are, there's not industrial agriculture like in this country to this extent, to the uh-huh. same extent. Got it. That doesn't exist. And of course, uh, with, since they do have dependent on cows a lot, and still depend on cows as, as a means for food and milk and cheese, they also then in, use the fertilizer to return the, the manure back to the land. All right, that is a practice that's still maintained. So, it, right, in this in this country, the, the farm, and uh, I mean the the cow operation and the fertilizer separated from the growing operation.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. So, uh, so to answer my question, you're not sure what percentage of of uh, agriculture is you what no. would qualify as USDA organic. In no, um, I would not know
3: that I would I would I could find out, but at this point I do not
0: know. Okay, that's it. Well, I that, I think that this notion of maintaining the quality of the land and and observing certain practices mandated by the government is something that uh, we lack in this country. You know, we have the standards, but and we have you know certifying organizations that try to maintain those standards, but in terms of saying. If Put you're you, gonna, if you're gonna you use
3: carbon back into the soil, yeah,
0: yep. exactly, or or precisely, or uh, you're going to grow uh, x amount of uh, produce organically. Well, we're down to our last minute, so I want to um, thank Steve Munno from uh, Massaro Farms, and you can reach them at massarofarm.org. dot org. Is that right, Steve?
1: That's right.
0: Okay, great, and. Um, then also our special guest, uh, Werner Heiber, who uh, I met at the uh, Real Organic Conference. Werner, thank you so much. This, is, this has been interesting. And perhaps we can do it again, and, and maybe you'll answer, be able to answer that question about organics in Switzerland. My name is Richard Hill. This has been the Organic Farm Stand. I thank you all for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Richard.